0: Hello, and welcome to Off Track On Purpose, the podcast where we come together to reimagine academic and faculty life. I'm your co-host, Britt Yamamoto, and along with Maya Fisher, I want to thank you for joining us. We're here to have heart-centered conversations with people who have experienced and successfully endured advanced academic training and gone on to have a meaningful social impact through their creative pursuits and practical actions. Today's guest embodies all of these things. Dr. Omi Oshun Joni L. Jones is an artist scholar and professor emeritus in the African and African Diaspora Studies Department at the University of Texas at Austin. Her scholarship focuses on performance ethnography, theatrical jazz, yorba-based aesthetics, black feminisms, and activist theater. As the founder of the Austin Project, a collective of women of color artists, scholars, activists, and allies who use art for reimagining society, and the creator of Sista Docta critique of the academy, and just being an overall generous spirit, Omi is what happens when Brit and Maya make a wish upon a star for the perfect guest. Please enjoy our conversation.
1: So we like to kick off each of our podcasts with a section we call Curiosities. And this is where we just talk about the questions that we're excited to explore with our guests and things that, from their background that we know of, are just inspiring us to ask the questions. Britt, what are your curiosities for today?
0: There's a few things that are really coming to mind. The first one for me is related to identity and how she's been able to infuse what I feel is her exploration of her own identity with creativity and teaching and expression and performance. And to myself, those are things that I've been very curious about in, in recent work and creative acts.
1: I like that idea about identity, and what interests me is with all of the background and training that we have from the academy, what does that mean? How does she identify herself? Does she think of herself as a practicing academic or as something else?
0: I'm also really interested in her story and what brought her to create a life which seems to be led by creativity in in an academic space. Very inspiring to see the reach of the work all around the world. And also what I sense is very much a focus on solidarity building across culture. So I'm very interested to explore that.
1: Yeah, the international and global scale of her work is really interesting. A lot of people I think who are trained in the US don't really do a lot of global work. So it's always interesting to me how people, particularly in creative fields, can leverage their expertise in a global way. And I'm interested in some of the projects that she's working on around equity and how that shapes uh, the work that she presents and shares with different communities.
0: I'm just so interested to hear what her vision is of the possibility for the Academy Mm -hmm. and how it might look a generation from now. And particularly with the new generation of scholars who perhaps don't shy away from being public intellectuals and being creative and how she sees herself in the arc of that transformation, but also how she sees that transformation evolving.
1: Lots of good questions and curiosities. I am really excited to just get the interview started.
0: I just want to thank you, Omi, for taking some time out to spend with Maya and I and to have this conversation.
2: Oh, I'm really thrilled. Thanks for inviting me.
0: We just wanted to start what we call your academic origin story and what brought you to graduate studies or to eventually go on to be a faculty and and invest so much of your time and energy in that space.
2: Wow. It's so interesting to think about an origin story with my academic life, my academic work, because origin story has to start in uh, elementary school where I love school. I just loved school. I was not the the kid who was thrilled that there was a snow day. (laughs) I was the one who wanted to be in school. I, I loved reading in particular and stories and all of that. And I must say, I also loved the attention that I often got from teachers and, and so on. And I was a good student, all of that. So I was rewarded for certain kinds of uh, behaviors. And I love those rewards. I, I moved through later parts of my academic life without the same degree of loving. I went to a small undergraduate institution in central Illinois. And mm-hmm. that love of learning continued there very much so Something about the intimacy at a small school, um, teachers who really went out of their way to make you feel at home, many things make that a really wonderful environment. Graduate school, on the other hand, was a a very different experience. It It didn't seem to be any more about loving learning. There was a deep competitiveness in the classrooms, amongst the students, there was a, a fear amongst the students and not knowing how to relate to the professors. And so there was a lot going on in graduate school that did not reinforce my excitement about reading, literature, learning new ideas and all of that. So it seems a little curious that I did end up as a professor. I didn't really have a, a clue about what that really meant. Of course, I had gone to graduate school when I started as a professor. I had my master's, but I did not have my PhD. Mm. Uh, and, and so, I, of course, I had some idea of what it meant to be a professor, but not as a career, not as a professor with expectations and judgments and all kinds of things. Mm. That began to get clear right away. And I started to feel less at home. World of study that had been so exciting for me for so long. It suddenly became a cramped kind of place. Mm. And that certainly continued in my master's and then through my PhD. And then I carried some of that into my subsequent teaching positions.
0: Thank you. For me, what comes up is as you experience that restriction or cramping, what led you to keep going on?
2: I asked myself that many times, (laughs) why am I still doing this? And I think there are are a lot of big reasons. There's a kind of legacy and legacy, I think in a healthy kind of way. I felt like I was part of a lineage. I knew that I had ancestors who couldn't go to college, Mm -hmm. let alone become a professor. So I felt like it was a real honor And an extension of who they were and what they dreamt of for me in my spiritual cosmology my understanding is that we all human beings are our ancestors best wish Mm -hmm. we are a dream so thinking of myself that way i felt i had a i'll use the word responsibility to do my very best even in a very difficult situation also I love the students, I love the students, I love them, those people sitting there wanting to be good, wanting to be their best, many of them not knowing what world they've just landed in, Mm -hmm. Uh, I wanted to help them know they could have a home space Mm -hmm. in that world, as hard as it might be. And even as I say that, I'm very aware that as a Black woman, there are these ideas about me as a nurturer that some people hold. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of Black women professors who want to make it clear to their students that they are not their mother, that Mm -hmm. they are their professor, and all of the respect that goes with that title should be given to them. I'm really aware of that, and I've had to balance that knowledge that some of my students may be seeing me inappropriately as a mother figure I had to balance that with, I really wanted them to love themselves. So it was a tussle at times internally, not to reinforce certain stereotypes or inappropriate expectations, while at the same time doing what I think I'm here to do. And that is help people know that they are worthy.
1: It's so Interesting that you say that because I sometimes feel that tension as well when I'm teaching. I want the students to explore themselves, grow, and learn to articulate their thoughts and ideas around these concepts. And the way that I do it is trying to create a space where they can work through that. It is somewhat nurturing, but it's also just somebody who gives them space that I've seen that a lot of my undergraduates didn't have. They were so used to being given things or told things that they didn't learn to develop these things themselves. Office hours, students came to me and unloaded all sorts of information on me, but it's because they felt that safety. They felt that nurturing was something that supported and encouraged them as human beings, Mm -hmm. that they didn't feel like they always got somewhere else.
2: Well, that was my experience very much. And you said it right using the word tension because Yes. I wanted them to come to office hours and share. And and there's a way in which that sharing helped them, I'm hoping, to also be critical of the very institution that they were a part of. Why do I feel so uncomfortable here? Why am I only sharing or sharing with this faculty person and that, but not with others? So maybe that gave them some way to analyze that experience. And there were times when I felt like it was a couple of different ways. One, I wasn't sure I was always equipped to handle all that they were bringing to me. I didn't necessarily have the training to handle some of the larger, more psychologically complex issues Mm. that they brought. And sometimes it was too much because it meant inevitably, if I'm taking time with that, I'm not doing something else. And as much as I wanted to take time with that meant I wasn't doing what The academy told me I should be doing, writing the article, going to the conference, doing those kinds of career requirements. So yeah, tension is a great word to identify what that
0: felt like. You spoke to the the power of connecting to your ancestral roots. When you were in graduate school, did you have much, if any, of that actual contextual support of either faculty or the grad students? Where did you derive your strength from with those around you?
2: I taught at Howard and it was at Howard that I began my dissertation. So when I was at Howard, I was not in a tenure track position or any of that. It was really important to be in Washington, D.C. and to be at Howard in these predominantly Black spaces because my dissertation was looking at Yoruba cosmology and Yoruba aesthetics to see how... African-American theater artists might draw from that as a, a series of grounded strategies for creating our work, African-American work. I don't know that I would have had the clarity, The and clarity is even too sharp a word, but I was in a world where black simply was. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt in some ways almost inevitable or obvious, that I would pursue a dissertation that took me deep into an idea or several ideas of blackness. I don't know that I would have gone in that direction if I were somewhere else, if I had been, if I had stayed at the University of Maryland, for example, I'm not sure that I would have done that work. There's something really powerful about a a thing being an is rather than something that has to be defended I didn't have to defend anything in the environment of Howard. Now, I did my PhD at New York University, and I didn't have any Black professors while Mm. I was there. My professors encouraged me, were very supportive, and didn't always have the, who I'll say the spiritual tools, for lack of a better term, to fuel what was undergirding all of that interest of mine. They were excellent in helping me to think of a handful of other scholars I might look at, some other approaches, even though the approaches that they were offering were pretty what I'm going to call standard approaches rather than the the really spiritual ones I was hoping to get at in that dissertation. So they did a, a great job preparing me for the career I would eventually have, even though there was no direct support around sort of juice of the dissertation. Now, I did all that dancing. I'm only sure if I answered the question, but it was a dance.
1: So, can I reflect back and see if I heard? Please, you'll do it better than I did. (laughs) Well, just how I'm understanding it is that as faculty advisors or supporters, they supported in the technicality of the scholar part, but the spirituality is a humanness of you as a person searching for meaning or understanding, and what drives us is this this human quest for understanding and connection and things that I don't think the academy is appropriately resourced <laughs> to support. A key, it's the hum the humanness or the human-bound passion things that drive people. And for scholars of color who the push and the drive for legacy or family or the understanding that others don't have the opportunities that you are in a position to do things that others can't, that is something that I don't think most of our advisors can really relate to. And so they don't really know what to do with. So they focus on the technical and then mm-hmm. it's this other sort of human piece that doesn't get nurtured or doesn't get
2: directed. Absolutely. And let me add to that, because you helped me to clarify one other thing. You're absolutely right. My faculty were great at what you're calling the technical part of, of moving through the dissertation. And maybe they thought that by offering that up, in a very precise and rigorous way that they were really serving me and they were but in other words maybe what they saw of me spiritually so to speak was a black woman who would be the first person in her family line to get a phd so let's give her every tool possible for being successful with that phd every tool that they knew and they did You know what I mean? So I think there may be some ways in which they were fulfilling a a kind of spiritual agenda too that they might not articulate in that way at all. But as you noted, and I didn't even know I was seeking it at the time of doing the dissertation, but I, I, I turned to the Yoruba because I knew that there were ways of making art and life that were not supported in Western theater, the Western theater that I knew, and not supported by the life options that were generally handed to me. So I don't know that I knew that (laughs) so much (laughs) later, let alone my faculty knowing it. And I'm excited that in the the latter part of my academic career, and I say that as if my academic career is over, it is formally, I'm retired now, It, it, it is in a different moment, it's exciting To see graduate students who really are embracing, in a much more direct way than I was, their dissertations, their scholarship as self-investigation and not in a self-absorbed way, but to say I'm here on the planet. I am here. So what does my presence mean in the larger fabric of things? And I'm so excited to see graduate students who are going in in that way how to make sense of my own reality through this
1: research.
0: I see it through my experience of this tactical versus the transformational. And I think my faculty were very similar to yours in that they understood the tactics, how to get a tenure track position, how to succeed in this academic world, all of which were important strategic tools to know. But listening to you, it made me realize that actually what drew me to graduate education after being away from the academy for a few years was actually this quest for what you called meaning and understanding, the transformation. I was drawn to the things I was learning that were helping me to transform as a human and understanding my own place in this experience of life. And that wasn't what my faculty wanted to talk about. Now, I should say that as a master's student, I did have some faculty that were supportive of that. And I think for me, as I learned some of the frameworks, even just something about like critical ethnography or being able to understand positionality or some of these frames that, that come beautifully out of post-structural feminist, postmodernist thinking that have helped us to understand how meaning is constructed, our place in it and so on. That I experienced as being fundamentally like emotional, spiritual, transformational learning. Not intellectual, deconstructive, being able to position that within a theoretical framework.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I get that. I could totally get that. You can make a career out of it and everything, but that wasn't where I lived. But hearing you describe it, I think it helps to bring some definition to some of that tension that I experience through my own graduate journey. Mm -hmm.
2: Now, I so appreciate being able to articulate some of this because part of why I think I became an academic, which is related to one of the things you asked me, I thought it really would be much more a life of the mind than it is. Mm -hmm. It is much more a life of career than it is life of the mind. I thought I'd be exchanging ideas with people who were interested not in winning arguments, not in proving their intelligence, but who really wanted to explore that idea, who were really trying to see, can we indeed, as I believe, hold multiple truths at the same time? Can we do that? How do we explore that? That was what I thought I was going to get as I continued my academic life. So I thought I was going to get more of that kind of feeling from uh, a reading and so on that I had in elementary school. And some of the, the conversations even that I would have in high school with people about a story that we read, graduate school was not that. And then trying to figure out what kind of academic I wanted to be after that training. It was much later in my teaching that I came to create environments that began to reflect those kinds of things that I wanted to have, that I wanted to have as a a grad student, even as a faculty member. So yes, Yes. another way to say thank you for this conversation.
0: (laughs) We've already established our mutual admiration society. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We did that part. Yeah.
1: Interesting that you're talking about creating these environments because one of the things that struck me in your earlier comment about the environment of graduate school, you talked about competitiveness and fear. Mm-hmm amongst the the peers and the relationship with faculty as well. That resonates with the experience that I have of highly competitive program. And most of the fears that we experienced was there aren't enough jobs to go around. How are people going to land jobs when you get there? And that kind of environment does not really facilitate or foster community. One of my follow-up questions is, How did you create community that either encouraged or supported you or that protected you perhaps in some way of the emotional strain of that kind of environment?
2: As a faculty member, I I created community mostly outside of the academy. I was an active theater practitioner for much of my academic career and continue to perform some but much less now so there was a a theater community a theater world that I was very much a part of I did a lot of work with the local theaters in Austin Texas and then when I was in D.C. teaching at Howard and then close enough to D.C. at the University of Maryland I did a lot of professional theater work so that was my community we worked on things together (laughs) it was that simple in some ways it's really that simple We collaborated and academic life, it has nothing to do with collaboration. You are rewarded for the solo authored book, the solo authored essay, a grad seminar. People don't even work together. We are at a moment in time when if we don't figure out how to collaborate, we are over. The planet's going to figure out what to do. Human beings, (laughs) we will be the dinosaur unless we figure this out. But we don't provide any training. At the highest level of education, we provide virtually no training in how to work with people. If people are in a very particular program that is community-centered, there's probably training about community activism and that kind of thing, which is really important. But man, it should just be a general, how do you work together?
0: Thank you for that, because I think it speaks to some of the inherent Laws may be too nice of a word, but of the academy where there's this this very antiquated structure that is, as you said, not incentivized to promote collaboration. It is built on a culture of scarcity where there are only so many jobs to have. So therefore, if you are successful and achieve the outcome, which is a tenure-track job or whatever, you become then positioned in that role to then know perpetuate culture but it's just so self-fulfilling in so many it ways is. and i think part of the impetus to have these kinds of conversations was that so much of the vision the energy the curiosity it's within these conversations people like us who've gone through the conventional experience and and be the potential you have people coming together with very strong intent to learn and do things differently and passion for all these ideas and all these things and yet The system intended to crush that. I like to say that these things are called disciplines for a reason, (laughs) because you learn the way and those who learn the way advance. And so it's a bit of a Gordian knot, right? Where there's so much potential and yet there's such deeply entrenched um attachment to the way of doing things. Uh, when
2: you say that it prompts me to include in this whole thing about collaborating and working together, part of what I was drawn to during my early career as a professor was theater. Mm-hmm. And black feminism came later as an understanding it's always been present but as a as something to articulate as a practice came later. And collaboration is very important to black feminist theory. So theater, a place where you actually make things, you got to figure something out with somebody and black feminism and the black feminist spaces that I connected to around collaboration really come out of the Cumbie River collective statement mm-hmm. and how those women, ooh, through a lot of conflict, forged powerful work. So those ideas are important and I wanted to mention both of those because each of them black feminist theory and praxis and theater particularly the kind of theater that I am most drawn to theatrical jazz challenges and not even always consciously it's not like setting out to resist but because it's what comes up is something other than what already exists. Mm -hmm. So these collaborations were generating new possibilities. And I was really excited by that. Working with Lori Carlos and Robbie McCauley, Daniel Alexander Jones, Sharon Bridgeforth. These people were doing things in theater. And I was like, what? You can do that? Or, not even, or, and it was, oh, if they can do that, and they're a human being, and I'm a human being, (laughs) I might be able to do this too. So I wanted to make sure I put in the mix of this conversation, the ways that Black feminist theory, the ways that theatrical jazz gave me the assurance, even if it was tiny and tiny for a long time, but the assurance that there's some other ways to do some things. I didn't get that in academic life. I got that there's a way to do things, not multiple possibilities.
1: So if I could follow that up with a question, how did you make that transition or begin creating those communities or those connections outside of academia that allowed you to do these other types of projects or other types of things that fed you differently. It
2: is hard, as you said, to to figure out the point because it was more more of an evolution, a kind of slide as opposed to a point. There were a couple of things that I think were useful in encouraging me to trust that there are other ways of doing things. And I must say this too, this conversation is helping to articulate a lot of this. If you don't say some things out loud or write them down or dance them or blow them into a saxophone, you don't know. This conversation is helping me to even get sharper on some of the things that I live my life. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a choice. (laughs) I came to the University of Texas in 1990, my first tenure-track position, and I felt like a real fish out of water. Some years later, a friend of mine, Edmund T. Gordon, who's still at UT, he and I became the director. He was the director, and I was the associate director of something called the Warfield Center for African and African-American Studies, and we turned it out. We said, "Okay, we gonna go for broke. Every vision we got, this is our shot." And we did many things, and it was enormous fun, and it was incredibly difficult. And there were nights of crying. I was so tired, it just drained from the effort, and it was amazing. That was important. First of all, you can be real subversive in institutions. And one of the things that universities have trained many of us to do is to follow the path. You know, there's a whole lot of these kinds of swervy places. As a center, I'd always argued we had a whole lot more flexibility than a department. Departments had to have majors and departments had curricula and all these things the state legislature oversaw and all that stuff. So we did all kinds of things. We started an art gallery. We had a performing blackness series. We had a diasporic lecture series. We went for broke. So that experience helped me to know, oh, a whole lot is doable. If you dream and are willing to put in the work with the understanding that exhaustion is never a strategy, (laughs) exhaustion should never be the way, but that was important. I think that kind of gets at your, your question, Maya. And note too, it was working with somebody and lots of other people. It was not just me and Ted. It was a lot of other people who were in there. And it meant doing all kinds of things. When you go into meetings and in those paneled, walled offices and so on, working out between us, who's going to make which argument and all of this. There was a lot of collaboration and a lot of people conspiring together to make something different, to do something new. That was exciting, clearly. And you see my energy level just went up.
1: For listeners who can't see us, the level of enthusiasm and all of the additional parts of your body that were involved in the telling of that, clearly it's something that is joyful for you. you. The memories bring you joy and excitement and they're good memories. And we can't always say that about things affiliated with our educations as graduate students.
2: And it is. It's energizing. I I also don't want to mislead myself or others. It was hard. And we tussled as faculty. We tussled with each other, sometimes in not very generous and kind ways. So I don't want to paint a picture that it was only the joy, but there was a lot of joy. (laughs) A lot of joy.
0: I think that's a great story for this podcast because it happened within an academic structure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You were able to marshal the support and the connection underneath and find your niche in the, the overarching academic framework. Mm-hmm. I think there's so many of those, especially within large state institutions are, are one institutions that have all these places to, to find opportunity, <laughs> uh, but that requires an entrepreneurial spirit that requires some creativity. That requires the will to do it and finding others who can help to guide you and say, hey, actually, there are all kinds of ways to find opportunity to advance your ideas in the academy that don't involve a tenure track position.
2: I think many people, so-called junior faculty, when they enter a tenure track position, don't even realize what they could do, even as junior, junior faculty, what they could really do differently, that might be more in alignment with their spirits, their hearts, how they envision the world.
0: Was there a turning point where you fully occupied that tension between the fear and the confidence to take action? You remember a particular <laughs> event or some, something you worked through? or
2: There are a couple of incidents that keep coming back to me. Yeah. I'm not sure that this is exactly what your question is headed toward, but I'm going to mention two of them because again, they just keep rising up over time. So I know that they are relevant in in some kind of way. One incident when I was the associate director of the center, young black undergraduate who had spent a fair amount of time in and out of the center. Undergrads would come and flop on the couch and study in different places and so on. And it was very nice having that energy. So he hung around and I knew him not well, but he'd never been a student of mine, but I knew him from being in the center. I was at my desk and he came in and clearly something was wrong. His body was stiff and he was talking the way I am right now. There was, and I said, come in. And then he just started crying for a black man, for any man, a black man at a PWI to cry. This was summer school. He was in some class. I don't even remember what department it was, in, but the class got into a discussion, I think, about enslavement in the U.S. And the students were arguing back and forth. Now, I'm, I'm, my memory on these details is fuzzy. I believe they were talking about the pros and cons of enslavement. And this young black man done up the the button-down shirt and the crisply pressed pants and the whole thing sitting in his classroom. And the teacher didn't do anything to Mm. advance a series of well-known truths. So I held this young man and he cried and that, that body, that stiff body, that stayed with me. I think that one is important because I thought a couple of things. We academics, and I will say Black academics in particular, we can offer spaces where students can validate the rage of such a moment Mm. and think of that as a moment that can lead us to building and celebrating. So I think there's something in what we do as academics that should make space some of that not that we are counselors not that we are psychiatrists but this is what students are encountering in classrooms where they should be free in quotation marks all right and then the other incident young black woman was working on a project with some of her classmates she was the only black one in her group they were sitting in a hallway working on this project because i guess they had spread out across the building to work on the project. A non-Black professor came out of his classroom and basically called her a bee and told her to shut up. She's making too much noise. Long story short, I worked with her to prepare her grievance and the upshot of all of that was that the university acknowledged that the professor had done something wrong, but that it wasn't racist. Her friends wrote affidavits to say, He singled her out. He talked to her. He didn't address the group, all of that, but that it wasn't racist. On a technicality, I'll say this this way. There is such an investment in whiteness and in institutions that people will invest in those things on a technicality. So if I had said sexist, if I had argued that what he did was a sexist thing. Maybe then, because it was the B word. How do you use the N word? Maybe then they would have started mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying? It was, it, And those two things, and you could, I'm animated now in a different way, they broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Those two things broke my heart. And I, I'm recognizing part of the heartbreak was that I couldn't protect either of those people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Here I was, professor, hey, got my degree, making my salary, I get my summers off and my retirement plan. And none of that protected either of them. Mm-hmm. For what was clearly an assault on who they were. And the institution didn't stand up for them. So I think those things, it was like, oh, this is, and I knew it. Sometimes you gotta get hit over the head. Uh, like my ancestors, they know I'm hard headed. So they say, okay, Omi, you didn't get it. Let me give it to you again. So those two things really broke my heart. And as with so many things, I think it will be black folk have to figure out how to take care of Black folk. If we want to be in these institutions and have less damage done to our spirits, I I invite us to think of some other things. And all of that I just said could be said about every single person up in the academy. If we want people to be healthy in the academy, we should think of other ways to allow those institutions to function. So those are the two things. I hope that they are instructive to other folk.
1: It's interesting that at the particular moment we find ourselves in. and oh. Diversity and representation and why it's important and appointing Black CEOs and people on the boards and college presidents, etc., which is all well and good. But as your story illustrates, simply having people in the institutions is not enough. Mm -hmm. Because it's the practices of the institutions, it's the non-people of color that create situations or speak in particular ways or act or don't act in ways, as you said, that advance certain ideas Mm -hmm. in a more coherent or logical manner. And that perfectly illustrates why tokenistic representation is not helpful. (laughs) Institutions as a whole. All need to think about their processes and their procedures and how they operate themselves in order to create environments where people's selves are not assaulted as human beings.
2: What's joyous for me about this conversation is that the two of you often take something that I've said and find a nuance in it that wasn't my intention, but makes perfect sense. And, and, and my, this is an example, because I think what you just did, yes, yes, to everything you just said. And what I was thinking of when I was trying to work that analogy between what I'm calling the technicality with the young woman and what's going on in the United States, U.S. government, people know what happened on January 6th. People know what happened. I have listened to enough of the commentaries now to know that many of those persons are not going to be charged at the highest level, in part because somebody found something in the Constitution to protect white people, is what that means. That's what that means. And we all know if those persons had looked different, nobody would have hunted the Constitution to figure out, oh... Because this is domestic terrorism, we don't really have laws in the books. Nobody would have cared. It's like this man, somebody, provost, found this way to get out of the mm-hmm. maximum penalty for that professor. Just as whatever happens to all of those insurrectionists and only probably an eighth of them, if that many will get any kind of anything, they are still not going to get what would have been the maximum penalty if they had looked any different. I'm like, wow, this is when you get your bad
1: sack for Ghana. <laughs> it's interesting because the way in which America operates is driven so much by our history and the way it was shaped and all of these other things. and One of the things that interested me about your story, too, is this global lens. You had talked about these other communities of women who used performance in a different way or these other communities that tried to illustrate or message or express themselves in different ways than traditional American theater. The fact that they are from the African continent and/or diaspora is also interesting because mainstream academia, mainstream America don't really think of those places as having anything to benefit. To broad cultural depth or progress or advancement. And so it was really interesting when we were reading your bio, when we first talked to find somebody else who had a global lens to the ways in which they work, mm-hmm. that also was able to see different models and mechanisms for doing things that were worth sharing. Mm-hmm. And that I don't think is something that I would say in my field for sociology, like global or international, it's not really a thing because the American version is the one that is upheld and to find somebody who is doing work in a global sense too, or using comparative or global mechanisms or models to be able to contribute in advance a scholarship and work here is really fascinating. So that was something that also I was curious about. <laughs>
2: wow, wow. Well, I, I love the way you frame that because I am only beginning to look at my work as more global. You know, it's really interesting when you are a quote unquote researcher, there is a way that we are sometimes encouraged. Not with critical ethnography, but other approaches where we're encouraged to stand at a distance from the research. And it's fairly recently, like the last 10, 15 years, that I've begun to really understand how my ideas about performance, my ideas about life have been shaped by extended periods in Nigeria, evolving relationships in Ghana, evolving relationships in Brazil, that all of those things have come to bear. When Trump was elected president, I was thinking, oh, I need to talk to my friends who've been working with dictators for a long time. They know some things. How are they navigating? How are they thriving with dictators in place? So I'm trying to embrace more of my relationships throughout the diaspora so that I I can learn more and understand I'm working to release myself from U.S. arrogance. Everybody's supposed to have a house, and everybody's supposed to have a car, and everybody's supposed to get a college degree. Trying to release myself from unconscious expectations, and my relationships outside of the U.S. help to do that. They're vital for me.
0: I was trained as a geographer. And one of the things I enjoyed the most about my training was that geographers, relatively early on to other disciplines had to confront colonialism and had to uh-huh. work through that because the discipline itself was sort of hand in glove with conquest and imperialism and uh-huh. colonization. So as a result, you find a longer tale of critical analysis of what harm geographers have wrought on the world as being enablers of the imperial project. For me, the global peace has been so important in even just situating the sort of the recent moment in American context of supremacy and very outward forms of oppression and how those are experienced and then seeing how they're similar and different in other Uh people.
1: Wow.
0: I, I want to come back to those two stories that you shared because even though you qualified it as being maybe not clear, I think there's something in that telling and in that sharing that I can connect to what you've said and what you've shared as something similar to either something that I've experienced or others around me have. That like you said, you've got to get the words out. You've got to play that tune and hear how it sounds, but also how it lands on others. As a result of that, begin to create something together.
2: Yeah. This podcast is part of that, right? Trying to figure out how to create new possibilities, doing it together. The fact that the two of you are doing this together, it's not a solo venture. That's really important. So yeah, you are modeling it. And indeed, I think that was one of thinking spiritually that the universe set it up. My ancestors set it up. I was supposed to be there for those folks help them move through a difficult time.
0: How do you think you might describe your relationship to the Academy?
2: Wow. I tell you what's hard. I'm still trying to figure it out. For a while I'd gotten comfortable, even with retirement of saying, I am an academic, Mm -hmm. which was a way to acknowledge that I have certain sensibilities, this certain ways of doing that I think of as academic that feel like my I have more recently thought oh to name myself that way is too much of a box and so I've been toying with other kinds of Namings. (laughs) I I redid my CV because now it's okay. How do I present myself to the world? Do you put your academic training first and then all your publications? How do you order all of that? I'm having a hard time because I don't know. There's a way that I I love school. Let me say that I love it. I love it. I love learning and excitement and light bulbs going off. And it's part of being human. It's how we grow. It's how we connect with other people. Now, what do I do with that when I line it up against some really hard and damaging practices in academic institutions. So I, I I don't know. I'm excited that I know that there are people who are now creating their own sort of academic institutions. There is something called the Black Feminist Film School that Julia R. Wallace has started through Mobile Homecoming, and I know that there are lots of others of such examples. Those things are very exciting to me. I don't know if. The academy as an institution is going to be a place where Black freedom can happen? I don't know. I don't know. As long as there are Black faculty and there are Black students who are enrolling in institutions, I want to do what I can to encourage them, encourage myself to stretch those institutions, be subversive within those institutions to create healthier places for everybody. I don't know how I would describe that in terms of a relationship. <laughs> Every relationship, right? It's complicated, that's right. It's very complicated. Because I, I haven't been able to completely walk away. A friend invited me to team teach a, a grad seminar at Northwestern this spring quarter. And I was thrilled, I was like, yeah. I'd love to do that. The title is Black Art in Anti-Black Worlds. I was like, oh yeah, come on, let's do this. So I don't know how to easily name my relationship. I haven't closed the door on it. I haven't given up on it, so to speak.
0: It sounds like you still believe that they can change. You still believe in their core.
2: I guess, you know what I got to check myself on? Is it that? Or is it what I hope is not some notion that I've got this solo power to do this thing? You know what? Maybe rather than I think it can change, I just still get juice from ideas. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what's going to come in this grad seminar. They're going to have to make work around various themes. I'm excited to see where their imaginations take them. That still is thrilling. The
0: way I experience what you've just shared is that you're still quite clear (laughs) what it is that you love, and that is the learning. That's true. That's true.
1: What also resonated with me is that you are not allowing the institutions to limit what you believe can be transformative education or learning for students, whether it's the grad seminar that you teach or how you've conducted the courses that you've taught, because it often looks to me as though institutions through structures and processes within departments determine what is important to teach, whether it's an intro level that can reach 400 students or a seminar where you only want to focus on 25 students and deep dives. Within those topics, faculty have some wiggle room in how they convey that learning. Perhaps the change is not exclusively in what is being taught, but how we teach and make that relevant to students, as you said, in a way that is positive for everybody and also informative and transformative and connecting with people. Maybe that's the opportunity and the place for change or just pushback against the traditional academic thing?
2: I think there's a lot of space in classrooms to do a whole bunch of stuff. As much as there may be state mandates about what the curriculum is supposed to be, what you actually do in your classroom, nobody knows what you're doing in there. (laughs) Nobody knows. Yeah, I think Bell Hooks in um, Teaching to Transgress said that the classroom is the greatest site for social resistance, social activism, but it was a way to acknowledge that as a place where a lot can happen. Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Omi, I want to make sure that we make space to explore your project with engaging Black academics, Mm. and if you'd like to say what that is and how it's progressing and what your vision is for it. Sure.
2: It is called, at this moment, Our Next Now. I co-created this with my partner, my wife, Sharon Bridgeforth, and it is what I'm calling a rumination. And there are, I believe, five sections to this rumination. Sharon is somebody who writes for performance and has developed a series of oracle cards, ancestral oceanic oracle cards that have a relationship to Yoruba Cosmology. She did a reading of that deck, which meant she pulled five cards from that deck in a particular sequence. That sequencing informed what I then had to offer about the Academy as our next now. I mentioned some of the sections, the five sections, begin. We've got to start, we all people, and in this instance, in particular, Black people, to feel into what needs to be done, we have to get present. We have to be still long enough, so we got to start somewhere. The second section of the rumination of the oracle reading is healing. I think Black academics have so much healing to do. Without that healing, I fear we allow our pain to spill out sometimes in explosive ways with our colleagues, with our grad students in particular, a lot that has not been addressed that is painful that should be grieved and then healing. (laughs) So... Those two go hand in hand. I then offer as a third, following the sequencing of Sharon's reading, building, making community, collaborating. I think that this is very important part of healing, actually, is doing with others, working with others. And Black academics, perhaps of necessity, we spend a lot of time in our classrooms rehearsing Black pain. As somebody who taught performance, to talk about Black performance, and if I want to do the history of that in the United States, there's got to be some conversation around resistance. There's got to be some discussion of productions that never got mounted because the artists said that they weren't going to be in segregated locations. So there's some reference to Black pain that gets rehearsed over and over again, I think, in our classrooms. And that can leave faculty and students full of the pain, those stories, the stories I told earlier, they are in our Muscles. So celebration gives us new muscle memories, literally dancing, singing, writing, parades, costuming, all those things, floral design, making a garden, all those things are physical activities mm. that give us new muscle memories about being human in general and being Black particularly. So that's the thing. And I say something. I reference the one story about the young woman being called out of her name. I need to include the story about the young man. Again, if if it keeps rising up, I'm supposed to do something with it. And that's what I'll do. My hope with all of this is that people will feel inspired to do some really creative, perhaps outlandish things in those classrooms. Close that door and create the world that makes you excited. And what would that be? And I feel sure students they will be beating the door down to get into those classes students are hungry for something that says I'm an individual yes I want to be in collective but I'm an individual and my story matters my meanness matters that's what I'm working on
0: (laughs) small little side project
2: you know I thought I didn't know but it's much bigger than I realized I think it is a book I think what I want to do I think I need something bigger. And book is a, is, is a I wish I had another word, but it's, a, it's something else than a, something that will appear in an academic publication. It's something else.
0: That might be a lovely high note to dismount on, especially with the inspirational visioning and particularly the need for that type of a praxis within mm-hmm. so many communities, whether they be academic or otherwise. I want to thank you, Omi. Oh, conversation. It's Thank been you. oh, it's just been <laughs> it's been one of those elevating conversations that I think will be with me for a long time as yeah, things too. continue to sprout. There were several moments where I felt like I needed a moment or two. To... <laughs> the absorption rate wasn't keeping up with the pace of the conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: I echo Brit's sentiments. I haven't been writing in my notebook for a while, but I was taking copious notes. (laughs) There were just a lot of things that resonated for me personally, but also things that outside of the academy, I was able to connect with in terms of skill sets and ideas and motivations as well. And I don't think I'm alone in that. So I'm excited for others to be able to hear and make those connections as well. And so I thank you for your openness and the energy has really also been great. It is such a precious opportunity to articulate,
2: do you know? So so many of those things I've never said out loud before, those things that I said. Some of them I've said before, but in different kinds of ways. So it was such a growth process for me to stand inside of those ideas in this way. I just want to thank you again for the work you're doing individually, like out in the world, but then also for this, because... It's affirming that some of the things that I feel I, I should pursue. And you gave me the space to articulate some things more clearly. Thank you both so much. What a great thing you're doing. This is such a great thing. This is really important. I'm excited to see how it evolves. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll come back. Maybe there's a part two in the future somewhere. You <laughs> Absolutely. Know? In a year or so, what, what what will have transpired in the world? I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to Jennifer Lindfer. She put us together. Thank you, thank you. Wow.
1: One of the key words that came out for me was collaboration and the idea that the Academy doesn't train us or prepare us or value collaboration. And it was interesting because in my multidisciplinary master's program for international education, there was a lot of collaboration, but in a more traditional PhD, uh, social science background program for sociology, there wasn't. But outside of the academy and the work that I've done with Japan or China or other programs, it's always been about collaboration. And so to hear it come up in this conversation in that way with respect to the academy really made me think about where did I learn those skills? Where did I get that training? And I'm not really sure I have an answer for that, but it raised that question for me that I thought was fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think there's so many things or maybe more emotions that are present for me. And I don't quite have the language to describe them. I was just so moved by her generosity of spirit and her enthusiasm for learning. That latter point on learning, because it reminded me of what I was like as a young person, but also what led me to want to continue on with school and how I coupled school with learning, because of course, why wouldn't you as a young person? Because that's what you know. But then you realize, oh, learning doesn't really happen here. (laughs) Or maybe it's where you realize learning can happen in other ways. And you can get fueled by that. Her enthusiasm for that commitment or that understanding of herself was very defining for me and her mentioning the wisdom of her elders and her ancestors and that being a a really important driving factor.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that was going to be my emotional point. There was a deep sense of caring and humanity for people in the way that she talked about her students and wanting to provide spaces for them, talking about protecting her safety. And it's often hard for me to believe that there are more people out there who care about people because that's not really what we talk about. That's not really what we hear. And so to be reminded that there are people out there who are passionate and care about people makes me hopeful and validates the fact that I'm not alone or we are not alone. And that heart-centeredness work or careers that are driven by that are successful and are impactful and are meaningful in the world is also validating (laughs) and very hopeful. Mm
0: -hmm. The first story she told about the young Black man who came into her office and broke down, of course, it was very moving. And the image that came to mind was that representing a larger place in the world, of her and that grounded inspiration of being able to create a space to hold the trauma of others and then to help facilitating some healing. And she went on later to describe the parts of her rumination on the next now, but connected to that, the aspect of building community celebration isn't just to acknowledge, but actually it's to transform and it's to step into that next now. And so it's elevated the discourse or potential for the conversations that we're convening here beyond just the tactical, how do I make it through the academy? I just so deeply appreciate her and how she showed up. There was no performance to it and just how she is helping to clarify what this could be and then what it could contribute.
1: And the conversation that she had about the advisors and the technical and the feeding the soul or the spirit pieces is reflective of what we had thought about and envisioned for the podcast, right? Like it's not about navigating specifically grad school, but what are the emotional and personal and human aspects of the experience that have stories to share or lessons to learn or just information that can be valuable to somebody else or to get somebody else to think about Their own experience in graduate school and navigating that. And I really resonated with her idea of sharpening and the idea that conversations help you to sharpen and articulate your thoughts and ideas and are places and spaces to say out loud things that you haven't ever said to somebody before. And so the conversation is that space it's that environment where people can feel safe to to speak to share to open up and that is something that's needed everywhere and anywhere not just in the academy but in other places and so if the podcast can be that for people that's a wonderful thing and that's our contribution to the cacophony of podcasts yeah.
0: i just appreciate how from a purely self-interested standpoint, there's an unexpected lightness of being that I had not even anticipated nor expected would be a part of this, like cracking open of my experience in and around the academy and even retroactively being able to say, I wasn't alone or I'm not alone now as I carry with me whatever memories of that experience. Just a real gift and real.
1: I think the other emotional piece is there was something very spiritual about the conversation and just in between the three of us. And I feel like there was a piece of me where the spirituality that she was talking about and she led with at times spoke to my own sort of faith and belief and ideas about legacy and whether it's ancestors, whether it's God, the things that helped give me direction or purpose or move me forward, that was a real connection point for me that I don't think I expected. I really was excited to experience,
0: mm. that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That totally makes sense. To that point on ancestry and lineage, I had forgotten. Probably my greatest regret after... I confirmed my phd was that my grandparents were no longer living and for my paternal grandfather who came as an immigrant issei and finished at the second grade basically and spoke very little english and so on and was of course incarcerated and everything else and education was something that he believed in so deep and he was also a farmer and so we had these other connections through our backgrounds but that he wasn't alive to experience that and there were a number of times where I would summon that and my wife always knows how to poke me to make me particularly emotional. She's like, oh, your grandfather would probably be so moved by what you're doing. Okay, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> but just remembering that and then just the connection and the lineage and all that goes into it. Okay, wow. I think we've set a pretty high bar for ourselves.